Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. All right, welcome back to Absite review vascular part two it's with jason and kevin here jason we'll start off with a few softballs here get us warmed up what is the most common splanchnic aneurysm and what are the indications for fixing it most common is your splenic artery and your indications are if it's greater than three centimeter or the patient is a female and of uh, childbearing age yep exactly so it, it the size the svs came out with new size criteria about a year ago so it's three centimeters now, not two. You can coil embolize these. Make sure you vaccinate them before as the splenic artery can infarct. I'm sorry, the, the spleen itself can be infarcted from the procedure. And if, of course, if they're unstable and they come in with a ruptured splenic artery, you do a splenectomy. Okay, what is the clinical presentation of a ruptured splenic artery aneurysm? Yeah, so this is what you'll hear is double rupture. So it's initially contained by the lesser sac, but then it ruptures into the free intraperitoneal space. Okay, great. All right, now let's talk about some more visceral aneurysms. How do you treat a hepatic aneurysm? So that one that cut off is two centimeters in size, and you treat with a resection and a reconstruction. Yeah, so you can't coil this because you need the flow to your liver, so you have to actually reconstruct it. Okay, what size criteria should you treat an SMA aneurysm? So you, all SMA aneurysms should be repaired regardless of size, so that's also a resection and reconstruction. Yeah, and... I, you know, I was trying to figure out exactly why that is the recommendation. I think it's because they're thought to be mycotic is the most common cause of an SMA aneurysm, so they need to be fixed. So what size criteria do you use for fixing an iliac artery aneurysm? So, there, well, first, I think it's important to, to note the association with uh, abdominal aortic aneurysms um, and iliac artery aneurysms, but the size cutoff is 3.5 centimeters. That's your criteria for repair. And with these, you can repair them with endovascular stents. Yeah. Many times you can do an endovascular treatment, still some open therapy also, and almost always associated with some abdominal aortic aneurysm, not always maybe the same size, hasn't met size criteria for the, the aortic part, but still needs to be repaired at the same time. Okay. One thing I just want to get across here, Jason, what is the common risk factor now that we're talking about aortic, iliac, femoral aneurysms? What is the risk factor that is by far and away the biggest risk factor? I think for every uh, vascular problem, smoking is probably the number one risk factor. Right, right. So smoking causes aneurysms, and the vast majority of these aortic iliac aneurysms are related to smoking, even if it's a distant. Okay, 
So what size criteria do you treat your femoral artery aneurysms? So, you know, femoral artery is a little bit smaller caliber than the iliac, so 2.5 historically, but here you can observe these up to three and a half. Is that right? Yeah, it sort of depends, but yeah, yeah. Two and a half is sort of the number I keep in my head, but, you know, every patient you take into consideration. And so these don't actually rupture, they embolize or thrombose, similar to the popliteal aneurysms. They don't really rupture, that's not what you're worried about, but they these aneurysms get thrombus lining them, and then they can cause, you know, critical limb ischemia. And so you treat the resection and interposition. Just of kind of interest note, we've we talked about iliac artery aneurysm, really referring to common iliacs. We haven't talked about external iliacs. Interestingly, they almost never get aneurysms, and it has to do with the embryology of them. I'm not smart enough to tell you that whole thing, but external iliac arteries, for the most part, don't get aneurysms. Okay, size criteria for treating popliteal artery aneurysms, and what workup does the patient need? So two centimeters or if symptomatic, such as an embolic source or a thrombosis. Uh, so the patient, there's again, there's an association with abdominal aortic aneurysms. So 50% of patients with popliteal aneurysms will also have a AAA, so they need a imaging for to look for a AAA. Right, right. So the patients that have AAAs, only about 5% of them will have popliteal aneurysms. But patients that have popliteal aneurysms, half of them will have an associated AAA. So just definitely keep that in mind. Two centimeters is the size to repair them, or if there's a lot of mural thrombus, or if it's embolized down the leg. And so most of these are going to need repair. So what are your options for treating popular artery aneurysms? So exclude and bypass or interposition with vein is the gold uh, standard. Yeah. So bypassing these is the best thing to do. Make sure you ligate your popliteal artery distally so you um, can't still embolize. So bypass, uh, bypass is a great option. Sometimes you can do it from behind the knee. And a lot of times we do it on the medial aspect. And then endovascular stints are reasonable in older patients, but you, ha you have to make sure that they have good outflow and have the multiple vessel runoff. Many of these patients don't because they've embolized from the thrombus and the aneurysm. All right, let's keep going. If a patient presents an acute limb ischemia from a thrombus popular artery aneurysm, what treatment modality should be used? So these patients need to be heparinized immediately and angiogram needs to be performed. So, so if there's no runoff or seminically di diminished runoff, a lysis with TPA to restore the outflow. If you have a good bypass target, distal thrombus aneurysm, you can go straight to a bypass. Right, right. So now we've kind of switched. We're not just talking about our patient that we found the aneurysm in clinic on a screening ultrasound. This is a patient that comes in on acute limb ischemia to the ER. They found epipopteal aneurysm thrombus. And so if you do your angiogram, because it can be both diagnostic and therapeutic, a CTA really doesn't show you vessels below the knee very well, especially when you have a thrombosis. So the angiogram is really helpful there, and you have to lice these open. Otherwise, your bypass or whatever you do isn't going to work, because a lot of times the outflow is trash, whereas the lysis will really clear that up for you. If, on the other hand, though, you have a great bypass target, your posterior tibial is massive and in line to the foot, you can just go straight ahead with your bypass and then not have to worry about the lysis. Okay. Indications for operating on abdominal aortic aneurysms. What are the sizes there, Jason? So in men, it's uh, over five and a half centimeters. In women, it's over five centimeters. We also want to look at the growth rate. So it grows more than one centimeter a year or a half a centimeter in six months. That would be an indication for a repair. Great. Yeah. And so there are some of these that be, can be quote unquote symptomatic if they embolize from the mural thrombus or cause blue toe syndrome or something like that, that would be an indication also, or if they're infected, such as a mycotic aneurysm, you have to repair that. So what patient should be considered for open aortic surgery rather than endovascular surgery? 
So, uh, well, number one, younger patients, so patients under 70 who have good cardiac and pulmonary function can be considered patients with uh, complex aortic anatomy, such as uh, pararenal or small iliacs that would uh, complicate an endovascular surgery. Right, right. Yeah. So open surgery is not dead. It's actually kind of making a comeback. And so younger patients with good operative risk factors should be fixed open. And so they, I have seen questions about this. And so, yeah, if it's going to be a really complicated endovascular procedure and they're young, you might as well just do it open. Okay. So when performing an open AAA, when do you decide to re-implant the IMA? So if you notice that the IMA has pulse style back bleeding, then there's no need to re-implant. You know, if it has no back bleeding, then there's no need to also no need to re-implant. But it, if it has marginal back bleeding, then you should re-implant it. Yep. That's sort of uh, how we do it. Or sometimes if you have disease, other mesenteric vessels, I'll be a little more likely to re-implant it. But yeah, if it's pulsatile or not back bleeding, you do not re-implant it. If there's marginal back bleeding, the thought is that there it needs the perfusion from the aorta, so you, you re-implant that. The other reason to re-implant it is if they had a previous colonic surgery, as they the collateral networks may have been disrupted. And then also if they, you know, obviously if the colon or bowel appears dusky during the procedure, that would be an indication also. Okay, what vein is at risk for injury in an open AAA when clamping the aorta proximally? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in uh, some other sections, but the, the retroaortic left renal vein can be injured uh, as it crosses over the aorta there. Yep, and so you look for this on your preoperative imaging to avoid this injury. All right, what vessel is at risk when clamping the supraceliac aorta and dis dissecting through the gastrohepatic ligament? Yeah, we also talked about this in other places. So you want to watch for that replaced or accessory left hepatic as it, it goes in that uh, gastrohepatic uh, ligament. Yeah, okay. So you did an aortic aneurysm repair in a patient, and after starting a diet, they're doing great, progressing day three. You, they're on a full diet now, and fluid, they, they get distended, and they're not feeling well, and you notice fluid in their belly on an ultrasound. But what is this condition likely to be? It's most likely a chylocystitis. Yeah, and how would you treat that? So, so you manage this a lot of times with diet, so uh, low fat, high protein, and you want to have a medium chain fatty acid supplementation. Yep, exactly. So that that's any type of retroperitoneal surgery, urologic surgeries, things like that. You have a risk of causing disrupting the uh, lymphatic network and causing this problem. So a patient after an open AAA repair develops abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. What are you concerned with and what is your treatment? What is your algorithm to treat this condition? Uh, so I'd be concerned about ischemic colitis. So I'd want uh, to, we'll start resuscitation with uh, IV fluids and antibiotics and uh, to confirm that um, I may need to do a sigmoidoscopy. Okay, great. And are you going to rush this patient off to the operating room or, or how do most of these patients progress? I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try as also, you know, hemodynamic was stable, all those things, and there's no sign of perforation. But try and, and manage them non-operatively with supportive care. But if they, you know, develop sepsis, peritonitis, and are perforated, then they'll need, I would take them for a colectomy and, and perform a Hartman's. Yeah. Okay. So which part of the large intestine is spared from ischemia after a AAA-induced colonic ischemia? That's the middle and distal rectum because they have a separate blood supply from uh, the upper rectum. Exactly. So the proximal rectum is supplied by the IMA and the uh, middle and distal that comes off the internal iliac uh, vessels. So that is why that happens. Um, all right. So a patient is identified to have a four centimeter abdominal aortic aneurysm. How would you like to follow this patient? For four centimeters, I do yearly ultrasounds to watch for growth. 
Okay, great. Yeah. And if it gets greater than five centimeters, then you start moving your duplexes every six months. Okay. So you diagnose an infrarenal aortic graft infection. What is the treatment of choice? So I, I'm going to want an extra anatomic bypass. So for that one, I would do an axe-bifem ax ax bypass with aortic graft excision. Yeah. So this is obviously patient and institution dependent, but an axe-bifem with aortic graft excision is a great answer because then you're getting completely out of that infected field. You could also remove the infected graft, debride the tissue, and reconstruct with something like deep femoral vein or cryopreserved aorta. But I think the safest answer for the boards is axe bifem with aortic graft excision. Okay, so say you, you did this. Say you did the axe bifem with aortic graft excision, and the patient's in the ICU um, two days later and becomes profoundly hypotensive and loses consciousness. What, what are you concerned about? That's, that's it's a scary situation, but I'd be concerned about a potential aortic stump blowout. Yep. So that's the big negative of doing the aortic graft excision is now you have a stump of infrarenal aorta that's basically just ligated. And so you have to do whatever you can to strengthen that. So you can oversew it in multiple layers. You can place omentum over the stump. And some people use tensor fascia lata from the leg as a buttress. Obviously, it's an infected field, so you can't put uh, prosthetic material in there. Okay. A patient presents years after an aortic operation with hematemesis and hypotension. But what are you concerned about? Uh, that, yeah, that's I would be concerned about a aortic enteric fistula. Yep, definitely. And so, w what is this? So, the, so that's when you usually from a chronic inflammation, but you develop a, a connection between that aortic suture and the duodenum. Exactly. So, what if this patient was? extremely unstable. They're barely able to keep the pressures up. They're not really mentating. They're transfusing and keeps dropping. What is an option to temporize these patients? So sometimes you can temporize them with a endovascular stent uh, in the aorta. Exactly. Just to temporize the bleeding. Okay. And so say you get them through that initial scary few days. So what, what can you do now that they're then optimized? Yeah. So now you're going to need to do your aortic resection and aortic ligation with an extra anatomic bypass, or you could consider inline reconstruction and repair the duodenum. Right. Yeah. So you're going to have to ask your general surgery colleagues for some help here. You're going to have to take that duodenum off. Once again, you could use something like deep femoral vein or cryo aorta if you wanted, but I think extra anatomic bypass is probably the best answer. Is that what you would say on the outside is the extra anatomic bypass? Yeah. I think like extra anatomic bypass. Yeah. Okay. Because cryo vessels really don't have very good patency and deep femoral veins very, you have to know what you're doing and not many places do that. Okay. So when you perform an aortobifemoral bypass, how do you decide between an end-to-end -end aortic anastomosis versus an end-to-side anastomosis? So, well, first you need to ensure flow into at least one internal iliac for pelvic perfusion. So if the external iliacs are patent, you can perform an end-to-end -end as is, you know, the patient will have an internal iliac perfusion from retrograde flow. If the external iliacs are, iliacs are, are not patent, then you can perform an end-to-side, which allows antegrade flow into the internal iliacs, assuming the common iliacs are patent, of course. Right, yeah. So just kind of draw this out or think about it for a minute. It's definitely been tested. I think it was like my intern year, and I had zero idea what they were talking about. But you have to get flow to that pelvis some way. And so if your external iliacs are patent, you'll get that retrograde flow into the pelvis. If they're not, then you need to do the end-to-side to allow whatever native flow into the pelvis is occurring to continue. So how do you tunnel your aortal bifemoral bypass in regards to the ureters? So you tunnel under the ureter to prevent the development of hydronephrosis. Yep. 
And the way I just remember this is you're replacing the vessel, and so you just stay right on top of the vessel. So you, you tunnel right on top of your iliac artery, which is underneath the ureter, and then you're good to go. All right. Uh, you have a frail patient that presents with an occluded aorta, but cannot tolerate an aortobifemoral bypass. What other reconstructive options can you offer her? So an, an axe bifem is a, is a good, you know, durable option. It's, you know, less traumatic on the patients and has acceptable patency rates. Yeah, exactly. So axe bifem is your kind of go-to aortic reconstruction option in an infection or sick, ill people. All right. So let's just talk quickly about EVAR, endovascular aortic repair. Patient can't undergo an open surgery or something. What are some of the kind of buzzwords criteria that we need enabled to be able to perform an EVAR? Yeah, so th these are numbers that you, you have to know. These are testable. So your, your neck diameter, less than 32 millimeters, a neck angle, uh, less than 60 degrees, a neck length of at least uh, you know 10, 10 millimeters for your landing zone, and iliac diameters of at least 7 millimeters in order to uh, you know accommodate that uh, device. You also need to have a lack of thrombus or calcification in the infrarenal neck. So, you know, the way that I would ask that question is I would give you somebody that had a very torturous or an angle that was over 60 degrees uh, and ask what your options are for repair. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the ones I've seen come up most often is they'll give you an iliac artery that's very small, like four millimeters, and say, you know, is this a patient, a candidate? And so, no. The other one is the a really critical one is the neck length. You need enough healthy aorta below the renal arteries for that graft to seal in. If you don't have healthy aorta, that graft can't seal. The graft's not going to work at all. So you need 10 millimeters of, of healthy neck. So if they say a pararenal, juxtarenal, that all means there's not enough length uh, at the neck. And so that's another area where they just do not qualify for an EVAR. Speaking of having a short neck and causing problems, let's talk about endoleaks. So if you couldn't seal that neck or you tried to seal that neck and it did not keep that seal, that's called an endoleak. So Jason, what are the four types of endoleaks briefly? Yeah, so there's type one through four and one is broken up into type 1A or type 1B. So type one is a is means that the graft isn't sealed at either the proximal or distal end port. So again, that's pro 1A is proximal, 1B is distal. Type two is lumbars or the IMA continue to, you know, fill the aneurysmal sac. So type three is when components of the endografts are not sealed between the components. And type four is due to porosity of the graft itself or a tear in the graft. Yep, exactly. So your type one and your type three mean that your aortic sac has the same exact pressure that it did before you fix it. So you've done nothing to help these patients or in their aneurysm is likely growing. So you need a type one and a three, you have to fix, you know, not emergently, but re in a reasonable amount of time. And so for type one, you generally have to place a cuff to seal more proximally or do a fenestrated graft more proximally or distally, you have to extend further distal. A type three, the components, they're just not connected well. There might be over, not enough overlap between them. So you have to kind of fix that. Type two uh, is where your lumbars or your, your IMA is filling the aneurysm sac. So you only need to fix this if your aneurysm is growing. It's normal to have some type 2 endoleaks, and you can treat that with coil embolization of the of whatever vessel it is. And then type 4 is, yeah, the porosity of the graft. So you have to, or is a tear in the graft, so you have to basically reline it. Okay. An otherwise healthy patient presents to the primary care clinic with chronic upper abdominal pain, and they're found to have evidence of celiac artery compression on a CT scan. 
what is this name? What is the name of this disease, and how would you confirm it? And what are some surgical treatment options? Uh, so this is MALS or MALS or median arcuate ligament syndrome. So the core of the diaphragm are compressing your celiac artery, and it's associated a nerve tissue. So if a celiac, so what it would do is you'd get a celiac plexus block, and if that relieves the the pain, it can help confirm the diagnosis. Uh, treatment involves releasing the cura off the celiac artery and uh, decompressing that uh, nervous uh, plexus. Uh, it can be done open, or a, a lot of people are doing a minimally invasive, laparoscopic or robotic approaches now. And usually these patients will not need arterial reconstruction uh, unless they have uh, evidence of aneurysmal degeneration. Yeah, so it's in the vascular chapter, and vascular surgeons take care of this, but it's really a nerve issue. It's compression of that celiac nerve plexus that causes that chronic pain. It's not the compression of the vessel. So yeah, you, if they can't deal with it, you got to do an open release, or uh, you got to release that crew off the vessel and the nerves. All right, we're going to go to Jason's favorite topic here, peripheral vascular disease. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right, so very high yield, though, stuff here. All right, how do you calculate an ABI, Jason? So you take whichever pedal pressure is the highest, either the DP or the PT, and you divide that by your highest brachial pulse exactly. of the right or the left arm. Yeah. Right, yeah. So you pick whatever the highest of the DP or the PT, and then whatever arm is the highest. Okay, so just kind of briefly, how do you, what are the categories for ABIs? So normal is anywhere from a, a 0.9 to 1.4. If you have, once you get down to 0.5 up to 0.89 or, you know, below nine, um, you, you, you may have claudication. You start seeing rest pain at, at ABIs less than 0.5 and tissue loss at ABIs of less than 0.3. Yeah. So, you know, all of our patients, we get ABIs and toe pressures on. And so down in Texas, not many people have compressible vessels. Our ABIs are almost worthless down there. So what can we do if the ABIs are telling us, oh, the ABIs too, a lot of times, a lot of our patients, what should we do there? So, well, if you have not compressed vessels, that you have, like, like you say, falsely elevated ABIs. So you can get toe pressures because uh, these smaller vessels are generally free from that calcification. Right. Yeah. And I don't put it in here, but we get TBIs also. So, so instead of the arterial brachial index, you do a toe brachial index. And if that's greater than 0.7, that's normal. And we're not going to go through every part of that, but less than 0.7, abnormal. Okay. So, Jason, you have a patient that comes in. He says, man, my legs hurt when I play golf. Can you fix me, please? I walk a certain distance. It recurs every time, and I rest, and it gets better. I was a former smoker. What is this disease process called, and how do we treat the vast majority of them? Yeah, so this is very common, claudication. The first is lifestyle, so smoking cessation, exercise, and stat, and then in addition of a, a statin therapy for medical therapy. Exactly. All right. So he says, "All right, sure. W what kind of exercise should I do?" Yeah. So this is a there's a structured exercise therapy for this. So what you do is you have the patients walk until they experience that pain from claudication, and you tell them to walk through the pain for a moderate distance. And over time, they should be able to increase that distance. Yep. So this can be oral boards. This can be all your claudication patients, they need to be medically managed and put in through an exercise uh, program, and they need to actually walk through the pain to help improve. It's much, much safer than treating their disease with a stent or a bypass or something like that. So what does medical therapy include when treating these patients with peripheral arterial disease? So we, like we talked about, smoking cessation is very important. A high-dose uh, statin with a, a goal of uh, LDL less than 100 
and then uh, addition of uh, antiplatelet medication. Right, and it's important for these patients to know that their other vessels in their body look likely look like their blood vessels in their legs. So you're also saving their life, you know, preventing heart attacks and things like that that can kill them. They really need to get medically managed appropriately. So what indications would you intervene on a patient with claudication? So if it's lifestyle limiting and it's we've done all the things and it's failed, certainly if the patients start experiencing rest pain, that, that would make me concerned, and especially if they have a tissue loss. Great. Okay. Let's just briefly cover kind of how we image blood vessels. What are some of the, the ways other than ultrasound that we can use? So CTA is a great option. We have our you know more traditional angiography. You can be do either using a contrast or CO2 angiography, and then our, our magnetic our MR, MRA or our magnetic resonance angiography. Yeah, and so I think it's just good to know CTA is not really good for vessels below the knee. It's just hard to time it right and get good visualization. An angiogram is really going to give you where we you know put a catheter up and over and take a picture. It's going to really help you a lot more. Okay, Jason, now you have a patient uh, who has rest pain, okay, and uh, they have a SFA occlusion. Um, what kind of principles are going to help you decide whether you're going to treat this open or endovascular? Yeah, I know there's some, you know, kind of classifications for these type of things, but in, in general, endovascular interventions are, are best for lesions that are short and not heavily calcified. Long inclusions with dense calcifications are likely better treated with open bypass versus endarterectomy. Yeah. So, yeah, if it's a short, easy lesion to treat, if they're giving you a case where you have good inflow, yet they show you good tibial vessel outflow, and they say the saphenous vein is beautiful, it's three millimeters throughout, then I would lean towards open surgery. Femoral, the common femoral artery is, and same thing with the popliteal artery, we never really stent these areas because they're so much mobile, they're so mobile and they're prone to kinking and breaking the stents. So for the common femoral artery and the popliteal artery, we, especially the common femoral artery, we lean towards open approaches there. All right. So there's a few ways that we treat blood vessels, endovascularly and kind of very broad terms here. I've seen questions on this This is why I added it. So Jason, what are sort of like the three sort of main things we can do to a blood vessel? Yeah, so you can perform balloon angioplasty, you can stent, or you can perform an arthrectomy. Yeah. Okay, so balloon angioplasty, most common, but you really are risking creating a flow-limiting dissection in the vessel. And then even if you do get a good result, it's going to be relatively, it's not going to be patent for particularly long, so it depends what you're doing this for. Stenting is a lot of times something we use after we balloon angioplasty. This has better patency than angioplasty, but you risk thrombosis of the stent over the long term, and so in stent fracture. And like I said, we do not stent in the common femoral artery and try not to stent in the popliteal artery due to the high mobility of these areas. And then atherectomy is the rotor-rooter of the blood vessels. The biggest problem with atherectomy is you risk embolizing. You can imagine putting a little drill down a blood vessel full of plaque and things that you're going to send plaque distally. And so you can create a patient that had claudication or rest pain and turn them into a, a tissue loss patient. Or, you know, acute limb ischemia if you embolize down the leg. So if, if you're looking at a question where you're considering which one to do and they tell you they have three vessel runoff, atherectomy is maybe reasonable in that situation. If they have a single vessel runoff, you're not going to want to do atherectomy. And then generally with atherectomy, we place the little baskets to help uh, embolization protection devices. Okay, that's as much as I can t tolerate talking about that on the general surgery curriculum here. But Jason, so a patient presents with buttock claudication impotence and absence of femoral pulses. What is this syndrome called and where would you expect the lesion to be? Yeah, I could never remember if it's Lariche or Lariki. Well, when I say Lariche. Lariche? Yeah, uh, I wasn't even close. Uh, so 
Uh, these are aortic iliac symptoms. So um, this patient um, would be a candidate for an aortic bifemoral bypass or, you know, there's possibly endovascular options. Right, right. Yeah. So this is a, a common iliac or distal aortic lesion. And so aortobifem bypass versus a iliac stenting, it's probably good options for him. So since I've started doing a lot more Peloton, is this something I need to worry about? No, you need to worry about iliac endofibrosis, but we're not going to talk about that today. Oh, okay. Well, uh, maybe offline, you can tell me about that. Okay. Yeah. So if a patient presents with a thrombosed bypass graft, what is the likely ideology based on the time of surgery? So if it's early, like less than a month, that's probably something technical in that first two years. So that one to two months, all the way up to two years, that's neo-intimal hyperplasia. And then over two years, that's atherosclerosis. Exactly. Yeah. So if it goes down quickly, technical over the first two years, that's the inflammation, that's the neo-intimal hyperplasia greater than two years is sort of just progression of their basic underlying disease. Okay. So a patient presents with a large acute embolus that larges at the, lodges at the aortic bifurcation. How does this differ in regards to treatment options to Lurie syndrome? So, so embolic disease, you have an option of transfemoral retrograde embolectomy bilaterally. Lurie syndrome is an atherosclerotic disease in which a bypass would be indicated. Yeah. So I just, I put this in there because some people kind of think that any, you know, a, a, a occlusion at the same level is the same thing, but embolic disease versus atherosclerotic disease is very different and it, it presents very differently. The embolic disease is going to be a very acute, very sick patient because they are not used to having low blood flow, whereas the atherosclerosis is going to be the kind of slow building plaque and, and calcification. So if it, if you have a, if you get a question where you have a patient in AFib and they come in with bilateral cold legs and they have a embolus at the aortic bifurcation, you can do bilateral femoral cut downs and do embolectomies of the iliac arteries and, you know, not aorta bifem for this patient. Okay. So we're just going to quickly talk about different levels here. A patient presents with thigh claudication. Where would you expect this lesion to be? Thigh claudication, I would, I think, uh, iliac lesion. A patient presents with calf claudication. Where would you expect this to be? SFA. Great. Okay. So now you have a patient that tells you he has this leg pain, but you got ABIs on them. Your nurse put them in, got ABIs and they're normal. And so what do you want to do to make sure he doesn't have vascular disease that you're missing out on? Uh, I would do um, that patient a walking treadmill test. Exactly. So you have them walk until they experience the pain and then you recheck their ABIs. As proximal iliac lesions can have normal ABIs due to collateralization, but with exertion, you'll see a significant drop in their ABIs. So you can miss iliac artery blockages if you just do a normal ABI. Uh, a patient with AFib presents with acute new onset foot pain for two hours and has diminished pulses. How do you evaluate this patient and determine the urgency of revascularization? Well, it sounds like acute limb ischemia based on what you told me. So I would do a vascular exam to include uh, Doppler signals and a motor sensory exam of the, of, of the foot. Okay, yeah. So in a patient where you have a concern for acute limb ischemia, knowing their signal exam in their foot and their motor and sensory is what's going to drive the entire management. So for Rutherford 1, you're going to have diminished arterial signals in the foot or normal but no significant motor or sensory loss. With Rutherford 2A, your arterial signals are going to be diminished or not present, and you're going to have some sensory loss, but no motor loss. So in this case, semi-urgent revascularization is required. 2B, 
this is where you have all of the things above. So you have no arterial signals. You have you have sensory loss, but now there's evidence of motor loss. So this is the most urgent revascularization once you have motor loss. And then Rutherford's three, you have no signals, you have no motor, you have no sensory. The foot is non-salvageable at this point. So Rutherford one, I didn't say the management for that. Generally, you heparinize these patients and you get a CTA and you figure out a time to fix them. 2A and 2B are the urgent ones. 2A is not, probably not going to get up in the middle of the night to treat 2A, probably going to anticoagulate them and do it first thing in the morning. 2B is you get up in the middle of the night and go in and treat that. So Jason, is a patient with Rutherford 2B ischemia a candidate for endovascular lysis therapy? Generally not, because uh, it can take over six hours to be effective, and you uh, run the risk of uh, having permanent damage by that point if you're waiting to restore for that long time. Right. So this is the patient that you're probably going to do an open or endovascular thrombectomy on for urgent restoral flow. Okay. Where is, we've mentioned this in our quick hits before, but what is the most common site for an embolism to lodge in the leg? Yeah, so you're looking at your, really your bifurcation points. So most commonly at the femoral bifurcation with the profunda and the SFA. And then the second uh, most common would be distal and the popliteal artery as it bifurcates. Yeah, and so as it bifurcates, you're getting one bigger vessel going to two smaller vessels. So it was a certain size and it gets caught as the vessels narrowed. Okay, I'm just going to talk you guys through this. It comes up. Go to Google Image right now if you're not driving or running. You need to know the basics of an angiogram. You need to be able to identify the vessels as they come off throughout your leg angiogram because sometimes they will ask you this. So just for below the knee, you have your popliteal artery. And then the first major branch coming off laterally, the bigger one, and it has like a, it goes horizontal for a minute, is the anterior tibial artery. Then it goes down into your tibial perineal trunk. And then it, there's a fork there after your tibial perineal trunk. The one that goes straight down is your perineal artery. The one that kind of goes medial is your posterior tibial artery. So the anterior tibial artery and the posterior tibial artery actually run onto the foot as the DP and PT. I know it's hard to hear that, but just kind of look that up because it is testable. Yeah, just Google image search that and quiz yourself. You know, point the point your cursor at different things in that lower leg arteriogram and see if you can name those structures. Exactly. All right. So, Jason, we're going to talk a little bit about more about compartments. What are the four compartments of the leg and, and what do they contain in each of them? So there's the anterior compartment, lateral compartment, and then you have uh, both superficial and deep posterior compartments. So so with your anterior and lateral, you'll, you'll release these with your lateral fasciotomy incision. And so the anterior compartment has the uh, anterior tibial artery, and your lateral compartment contains that uh, superficial uh, peroneal nerve. So going back to your posterior, so you have superficial and deep. So the superficial contains the gastrocnemius and sural nerve. And then your deep contains the tibial nerve, your posterior tibial artery, and your peroneal artery. Okay. So, Jason, what vessels does diabetes primarily damage? So, that's your tibial vessels as well as your small vessels and your microvasculature. Okay. So, you have this foot wound that you're seeing in the ER. doesn't probe down to bone. The x-ray looked relatively normal. What is What modality is the most sensitive for diagnosing osteomyelitis in a foot? Yeah, your most useful test is going to be your MRI. Great. Now, how do you manage a diabetic foot ulcer with osteomyelitis and underlying bone? So you want to, you know, debride back to healthy bone, and then they're going to be on a prolonged course of antibiotics, like up to six, you know, six weeks. Right. Great. And so any of these patients that have these diabetic foot wounds, you got to make sure they have adequate perfusion. 
So generally we start with our ABIs or our non-invasive flow studies. If these show that the flow is impaired and the patient needs an angiogram, then that's the next step they should go because the angiogram is both diagnostic and therapeutic. And so you wait to perform the definitive foot surgery or debridement until revascularization is, ma uh, is maximized. How do you manage a patient that presents with evidence of foot infection along with severe peripheral arterial disease? So you want to first manage the infection, so resuscitate in antibiotics, and then you will want to revascularize, but you know, treat the infection first. Right, yeah. The, there's been questions where a person comes in with a quote-unquote hot foot, they're, they're borderline septic, their white count's really high, there's pus draining out of their toe. You don't wait to, and you don't take them for an angiogram that night. You take the toe off or open the foot wound, drain it, just like you do in many other aspects of surgery. Source control. Exactly. All right. We're going to go talk about everyone's favorite topic, venous disease. Okay. So some big topics in venous disease first before we get down to like the more common stuff. Jason, how do you approach the left common iliac vein, say it's a trauma situation? Yeah. Okay. That can be very challenging to get to. And sometimes you'll have to actually divide the right iliac artery that's sitting right on top of it. And then you'll have to repair that, of course, after you deal with the venous injury. Exactly. And so this is why you have May Therner syndrome, right? Because the the right iliac artery is laying over top and compressing the left common iliac vein. So you have to sometimes, you know, divide the iliac artery. Okay. So Jason, what veins can be ligated in trauma? So, well, most of them, but so... You can ligate really anything distal to the renal veins, but just be aware that the more proximal you are to the renal veins or the higher up you are, the higher the morbidity. But certainly if a patient's bleeding to death and, and you have to ligate, you can. Just remember that you may want to do a, they want to consider doing a prophylactic fasciotomy for a lot of those venous ligations. Right. Yeah. You can ligate the IVC, you can ligate an iliac vein, but they're going to get venous claudication in both of their legs. They're going to, they're going to be limited, but you know, if that's what it takes to save their life. Make sure you do the fasciotomies and, you know, it is what it is. Can you divide the renal veins? Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit in, in one of our other chapters, maybe the trauma chapter, but you can divide the left renal vein uh, proximal to the uh, gonadal vein as long as that's left intact because you'll get collateral and uh, retrograde drainage through that. Perfect. A patient presents with unilateral leg swelling and only deep venous reflux seen on the duplex ultrasound. What can you offer this patient? Boy, you can conservative things like compression stockings and elevation. Yeah. So come over to vascular clinic. You'll get to offer this about 10 times every clinic with deep venous reflux. There's no good surgical options at this point in time. They are looking at the valve transplants and things like that, but that would be for people that have severe wounds and things like that from most patients that have just the leg swelling are, can get better and be helped with compression stockings and elevations. So a patient presents with a unilateral leg swelling that worsens throughout the day and is found to have reflux in the greater saphenous vein greater than 500 milliseconds. The reflux is seen from the saphenofemoral junction all the way down to the thigh. What treatment options are available to this patient? Yeah, so this patient has greater saphenous vein reflux, and so there are ablation techniques that are pretty effective, so um, either heat ablation or chemical ablation. Yep, exactly. Um, so this is a patient that you can really give a give them a good result here by either heat ablation through RFA catheter or through a laser. And now there are some chemical ones, which we'll talk about a little bit more here in a second. So a patient has symptomatic greater saphenous vein reflux, but is isolated to the below the knee portions of the greater saphenous vein. So it's all below the knee. 
what is the best option in taking care of this patient? Yeah, so your your heat ablation is usually only used above the knee, and that's due to risk of injury to your saphenous nerve below the knee. So this patient would be a candidate for a chemical ablation. Right, yeah. So the chemical ablation is either glue or sclerosin. I don't think they'd get into brand names of the glue. Currently, it's seal. The, the sclerosin is verithena. And so this was great for below the knee greater saphenous vein because there's the nerves more closely associated and more nerve injuries. When So generally, we do not do heat ablation below the knee. We just do that for above the knee. So the other thing you want to make sure before you do a heat ablation above the knee is that the saphenous vein is deep enough and it generally needs to be five milliliters deep which most are, but you want to make sure of that because you could burn the skin if the saphenous vein is not deep enough. All right, so n- now you have a patient, you're taking them for the greater saphenous vein ablation. How far from the saphenofemoral junction should your catheter be? And what if on your post-op ultrasound, you notice that there's thrombus encroaching on the saphenofemoral junction? What is this called? Yeah, I actually remember this from doing these when I was a resident, but say, yeah, so you want to be two to three centimeters from that saphenofemoral junction, and the clot encroaching is called endothermal heat-induced thrombosis. Exactly, yeah. So thrombus within the greater saphenous vein is normal. That's what you're basically doing. You're causing it to scar down, and so that's okay, but we don't want that thrombus approaching the deep femoral vein or the, at the saphenofemoral junction. And so that's why we pull our catheter back into the greater saphenous vein to prevent that from happening. So Jason, just kind of in broad terms, I don't think it's important to know the different like classifications. I just think there's kind of in my, the way I think of e-hit is in three ways. And that's how I recommend you guys thinking about it. So what are the, you have this thrombus that's a little too close to the saphofermal junction. Kind of what are those three kind of categories and how do you treat it? Well, I don't know. I think I'm going to need you to walk me through this one on your... Yeah. Okay. Tapping me out. So if the thrombus is actually protruding from the greater saphenous vein into the common femoral vein, you basically have a DVT at that point. And so that patient needs full anticoagulation, likely for three months is the safe answer. Now, if you have thrombus that's flush with the common femoral vein, uh, there's two different courses of action you can do here. You can just repeat the imaging versus a short trial of anticoagulation, depending on how reliable the patient is, how worried the patient is about that because that's not a DVT, but certainly it's close. So that would be an option for there. Now, if you have thrombus within two centimeters of the saphenofemoral junction, generally we just do repeat imaging on them within a week or two to make sure that it's not progressing. And it's very unlikely to progress. So I think the way that, the only way that I think they're going to ask that on the upside is they're going to give you that one with the the, the thrombosis entering the common femoral vein. And the, 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 the answer is going to be anticoagulation. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, just within two centimeters and do nothing, you know, repeat image. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. And so in what situations would you be willing to offer someone a greater saphenous vein stripping? So I feel like that's less with the newer ablative techniques. That's less common, but if they have large greater saphenous veins that are too close to the skin, like you mentioned, or... Yeah. So really big greater saphenous veins. So we're talking like greater than two centimeters. The catheters can't scar those down or it's too close to the skin or kind of two of the main reasons. Some people have failed previous ablative attempts and that would be a reason to try it. But yeah, it's pretty rare, but it is still done somewhere. All right, Jason, how are spider veins or articular veins generally treated? Well, yeah, I remember doing this as a resident in clinic too. It's very satisfying actually. And that's that those chemical sclerosins that you can inject. That's sclerotherapy. Yep, yep. So polydocanol or sotradecol are the two the ones you can use and you inject them. Okay. 
All right, we're wrapping up here on our last major topic, DVT management. Okay, Jason, you have a patient that presents with a swollen blue leg up to the buttocks. Their motor and sensation is intact. What are you worried about and what is the treatment? Be worried about uh, phlegmasia cerulea dolens. So that's a iliofemoral DVT. And I would want to give you a call so you could come in and do some catheter-directed thrombolysis. Right, yeah, you can do catheter-directed thrombolysis. You could do thrombect, you know, catheter thrombectomy also are both good options. But motor sensations intact, so your hand's not forced in this situation. Many times we do it to prevent post-thrombotic syndrome, especially if it's an iliac, iliofemoral DVT. But as long as they have motor and sensation intact, you can wrap the leg, elevate it. That should be a critical part of all of this. And then plus or minus some thrombectomy and thrombolysis. Okay. So Jason, what is the most common location for DVT and which leg has a higher rate? Uh, so iliofemoral DVTs are the most common and the left leg is uh, twice as likely to have a DVT than the right. Exactly. And that's because of that compression by the right common iliac artery. Okay. What if a patient is diagnosed with a DVT but has a contraindication to anticoagulation such as a recent brain bleed? What can you offer this patient? IBC filter. Great. Where should an IBC filter be placed in relation to the renal veins? So you want those to be uh, caudad to the renal veins, so below your renal veins. Great. Okay. So we're going to talk about anticoagulation briefly. So you have a provoked DVT. Someone just had surgery or they had trauma and they got a DVT. How long do you anticoagulate them? Uh, three months. Okay, great. Patient has active cancer and they got a DVT. How long are you going to treat them and what are you going to treat them with? So they should just continue therapy really indefinitely until their cancer is cured, resected, and then for a period after that. But they should be receiving Lovenox. Great. Patient has a hypercoagulable disorder. Lifelong. Great. A patient presents with a painful cord on the inside of his leg. Duplex does not show DVT, but did demonstrate that the greater saphenous vein was thrombosed for approximately 10 centimeters. What is the diagnosis and how is it managed? So this is superficial thrombophlebitis. So if it's focal, like less than five centimeters and not near the saphenofemoral junction, it can be managed with NSAIDs and warm compresses. It's probably going to be the answer on the test. So a, a longer thrombosis, or if it's near that saphenofemoral junction, you would want to treat that with anticoagulation. Yeah. And so what they're recommending nowadays is the Fondoparinox 2.5 milligrams for 45 days. So just remember the Fondoparinox for a long if there's a long uh, superficial thrombophobitis or one that's close to the saphenofemoral junction, you're obviously trying to prevent this from becoming a DVT. Okay, so patient presents with a chronic non-healing wound of the medial malleolus of the left leg. What is the likely cause given the location and what should be the first-line treatment modality? Yes, this is a, a chronic venous insufficiency and the treatment is an unaboot. Uh, so that's multilayer compression uh, bandage that they'll wear for five to seven days at a time. Yep, exactly. So... Medial malleolus, classic board question, compression is the, the right answer. If they fail compression treatment, then you can talk about doing ablation therapies and things like that. Okay. How do you differentiate lymphedema from venous insufficiency? So the lymphedema will generally involve swelling of the feet, whereas venous insufficiency actually stops at the ankles. Yeah. And so what is that sign called to ch check the, you pinch the skin of the toe? I have no idea. Stimmer sign. Oh, okay. And so if you can easily pinch the skin of the toe, they're unlikely to have lymphedema because lymphedema has very dense uh, tissue. 
So uh, stimmer sign shows you that if you can't pinch it, that they do have lymphedema. Okay. And so what are the management principles of lymphedema, Jason? So compression and decongestive therapy. So that's some specialized massages to help drain the lymph from the leg, followed by compressive therapy. So essentially compression therapy. Exactly. Okay, great. Now let's do some quick hits to wrap out vascular here. Jason, how do you access the SMA quickly? So SMA, lift the transverse colon, and you mobilize your LOT. Great. How do you expose the supraceliac aorta and trauma? Enter the lesser sac through the gastrohepatic ligaments, and then you, you know, divide the cruise of the diaphragm. What is the biggest risk factor for ischemic colitis in a patient with a ruptured aneurysm? Preoperative hypotension. You have an old lady with headaches and temporal blindness and fatigue. What is this and how do you treat it? So this is most likely temporal arteritis, and you treat this with steroids. And you diagnose with the temporal artery biopsy. Perfect. All right. What vessels are affected in Berger's disease? Berger's disease is, that's a small to medium-sized uh, vasculitis. Yep. These are the smokers that have the corkscrew vessels and they have to stop smoking. Okay. I have a mycotic aneurysm. What is the most common organism? Staph. Great. Not salmonella. Okay. Great. Well, that wraps up vascular. That was exhausting. Dominate the day. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site.